So, Mark. Yeah? The movie we're discussing this week was set in the present when it was made, which means the mid-1980s, and as such, it presents a very particular vision of Colombia. Colombia occupied a very distinct place in the American imagination of the 1980s. Right, this is the peak of the Reagan-era drug war, so Colombia is very much portrayed as just, like, the country that is full of, like, drugs and crime willy-nilly, and that's basically all that's going on. Yeah, the the only industry that exists in Colombia at the time is drugs. So, in in the spirit of that, I wanted to know, are their favorite sort of ham-fisted, perhaps drifting towards insensitive portrayals of other countries in movies, especially movies from the 1980s, that really stick with you? For this question, I think I'm just going to run through a top hits of the We Love the Love back catalog in response to this. <laughs> Starting with... Oh, are we going to have to talk about the mermaid culture in Splash? Yeah, that's it. No, starting with one of the weirdest offenders, Dr. Doolittle, and the island (laughs) run by William Shakespeare the 10th. Then we've got Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark's depiction of just general indigenous people in the Amazon and also Egypt in the 30s. We've got Congo and its depiction of what's vaguely implied to be Uganda in the mid-90s. With the Delroy Lindo character who, like, demands bribes and stuff. Right. And I think those are probably... Well, there's also Joe versus the Volcano, which is another just very odd one. Joe versus the Volcano is working so hard to get a pass, though. Right. It's working to make it so outlandish that it's, like, not real people anymore. Oh, there's also Pirates of the Caribbean. With the cannibals. Did we that's cover the second that? one. That's not the one we talked about. Oh, that's in the second one. Okay. Well, that also just shows that this is a trend that continues well into the 2000s. Oh, yeah. The ones that I kept thinking of were ones where I couldn't tell if it was serious or not. Not quite on the Joe versus the Volcano level where it's clearly not. But like in a movie like The Naked Gun, which starts off with a meeting of the leaders of like all the countries that were sort of portrayed as minor geopolitical foes of the United States. So it's like all these famous leaders from like Middle Eastern and African and Latin American countries together having a meeting. And then Leslie Nielsen like bursts in and busts it up. And that's one where I'm like, yeah, obviously these are like stereotypes of these identifiable leaders, but it's also a comedy. And I think the joke is that they're stereotypes. And then similarly, like Wonder Woman 1984 has this bizarrely, stereotypical and also just strange portrayal of Egyptian politics in the 1980s that, like, doesn't really make any sense. And that's one where, like, I don't know if the movie was presenting that in earnest or if the movie deliberately created a villain set in the 80s who is like the villain of an 80s movie. And I'm not sure what the intent was. I did not hear about that. And that is very interesting, because isn't the 80s when Mubarak took power? Like, it is a very interesting time in Egyptian politics. Yeah, there's, like, the Pedro Pascal villain, like, makes a deal with a religious fanatic who, like, wants a chunk of Egypt for himself. Like I said, it feels like a villain from an 80s movie, and the most generous version is, like, assume intent on the part of the creatives and say, like, yes, they were doing that on purpose to make Wonder Woman 84 feel like a movie from the 80s, which is a thing they do at other times, but it's just so strange to see it in 2020. Yeah, you 
feel like people should just know better at this point. Right. It's You ask yourself, what are the essential parts of the genre? And I feel like stereotypical portrayals of other cultures are not essential parts of the genre of all movies in the 80s or even an essential part of the adventure movie genre. Like, I think it can be done without that. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary. Look at National Treasure. All of it takes place in the U.S. And there's no weird depictions of other cultures, except, I guess, El Dorado being under (laughs) Mount Rushmore because of Native Americans building it. But even, like, Curse of the Black Pearl manages to be a swashbuckling adventure movie without doing that. Right. And, I mean, a lot of this comes from just ignoring the fact that other cultures exist. But in some ways, I feel like that is better than openly racist depictions of them. Yeah. It's a tough balance. I do think this movie mostly comes out okay. Like, it's not great on that front, but it could be a lot worse. And I do think it's, like, subverting itself in some ways. Like, the fact that the Alfonso Arau character is, like, obsessed with Joan Wilder's novels, to me, is clear, like, we're just having fun here. We're not saying this is what any of this is actually like. Right. I think this movie is trying to depict specific people and not paint a picture of Colombians. Because in the scene in the village with just average people, it's just everyone is, you know, dancing and having fun. They're celebrating a festival. And it's not like, I mean, that woman defends Joan's purse from a man. So they're not all depicted as people that are like out to get the white people. It's just that they happen to run into the criminals is the movie's idea of what it's doing, I think. I would say the catch is the character Zolo, the Manuel Ojeda character, who has two different jobs in the government and also a private army that he uses for crime. Yeah, that's probably the worst part. I do find it interesting that the other villains are also white people. (laughs) Oh, you're talking about Danny DeVito and Ira? Yes. Did you watch the trailer? I did. I watched it after, like you told me to, and I was shocked at how much of the movie is in the trailer. It's an incredibly strange trailer, because it was the one narrated by Danny DeVito, right? Right. The trailer for this movie is Danny DeVito, who is a minor character in the film, on a set that does not appear in the movie, so it's a set they have just for the trailer, and he's like packing a suitcase on the phone with his cousin, being like, hey, I got this job. Like, there's this, like, explorer. See, and you're seeing Michael Douglas, and he's, oh, he's so tough. And then there's this lady, and we see Kathleen Turner, and, like, she's a romance novelist, but, boy, there might be something else to her. And Danny DeVito's, like, pitching the whole movie over the phone while frantically packing his suitcase. And then he hangs up. He's like, I've got to go. And then it's direct address to the camera, and I'm taking you with me. And the title appears on the screen. It's so bizarre. It is. I it's have the never, strangest trailer I've ever seen in my life. I have never seen a trailer like it. It's on the level of the Thin Man trailer where it starts with like a big Thin Man book and then he steps out of the cover of the book to be like, here's what the Thin Man is about. The difference is 50 years. <laughs> the difference is learning how to make movie trailers, which took a very long time. But had been done at that point. You should look up the Romancing the Stone trailer, even if you have not seen the movie. It is incredibly strange. And it shows so much of the movie. Which doesn't really matter because, like, it's not a twisty movie. It's just a turny movie. Like, right. It takes a lot of zigs, but it's basically going where you expect it to at all times. 
Yeah, I was shocked that they included the joke about him landing like he was eating her out in the trailer. Oh, they I, I had forgotten that. Yeah, that was a bold choice, especially in the 80s. That shot is the most, like, horny Robert Zemeckis shot in the movie. Yeah, the, it's not the horniest movie. No, which is kind of interesting. Like, if you look at Zemeckis from the start of his career with I Want to Hold Your Hand through Forrest Gump, and Gump is, like, the turning point where he starts making a bunch of dramas. But, like, that block of comedies, which is I Want to Hold Your Hand, Used Cars, Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future, Roger Rabbit, the Back to the Future sequels, and then Death Becomes Her. Those movies are all, like, pretty chaotic and pretty horny. And I feel like this one isn't too much of either. Like, there's a lot going on, but it is a fairly, like, easygoing movie that's not too intense at any point. As opposed to, like, the absolute chaos of something like Roger Rabbit or Death Becomes Her. There's a little too much of Michael Douglas's body <laughs> during the sex scene. Oh, well, well, we'll have to talk about, like, what all this means for Michael Douglas. Have we started the episode? Yes. We have not. Oh, we have gotten very far into this movie. Let's <laughs> let's dive in. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast committed to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week... We're looking at the romance between an adventure novelist and a birdnapper in Robert Zemeckis' 1984 hit adventure comedy romance, Romancing the Stone. I did not realize how big of a hit this movie was. It made a lot of money. A huge hit. I was shocked at how much money it made for its budget. Yeah, just for context for people, this movie made $75 million in the U.S., an additional $40 million overseas against a $10 million budget. Which is a big deal, especially for Zemeckis and for Michael Douglas. Because Zemeckis had made two movies previously, both of which were flops. Like, critics liked them, but they hadn't made money. And he and his writing partner, Bob Gale, wrote 1941, which made money, but was seen as Spielberg's flop. Because it made so much less money than Spielberg's other movies around the time. So, like, Zemeckis is on the cusp of being written off as a failure. When then this movie becomes a big hit. And he does this movie in part because he's like, I want to make Back to the Future. That He and Bob Gale had already written Back to the Future. But he's like, I need just like a movie that is successful so that people will treat me like a director who can make movies. And not just a guy who gets to make movies because he's friends with Steven Spielberg. Which is a fair point if you're going to try and make your passion project. Right. And of course, they had been trying to make Back to the Future for a while. They wrote it early, but people were resistant to it both because of the expense and because they were like, it's kind of weird. They tell stories a lot about how they would take Back to the Future to studios and all the studios would be like, this is a family comedy. Take it to Disney. And then Disney would look at it and go like, I'm sorry, the mom does what? Why are you taking this movie to us? <laughs> and so it was falling in this middle ground where nobody wanted it. And like, he's still in hot water while he's making this movie. Like, they had this disastrous test screening of the first version of the movie, which was so bad that Fox fired Zemeckis from Cocoon, which he had, like, spent a long time developing. So they went in and they, like, added more stuff. A lot of the prologue of Joan in New York, they added after that test screening, like, setting up who she was. How would you make this movie without that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I get why people weren't as into it. Yeah, you have to learn 
about you need to know a lot about Joan for this movie to work. She's the star of the movie. She is the star. Like you need to know her her whole deal. And it's kind of long. Like it takes her a little while to get down to Columbia, but I still liked that part. Holland Taylor is turning in a great performance as the she's friend. doing great work in this. But also, like that's helping to set up like one of the dynamics in this movie romantically is the fact that it's not just that Joan Wilder is a romance novelist and that she wants to find someone to be in love with. Everyone around her in her life in New York is like, it's ridiculous that you don't have someone. (laughs) So like Holland Taylor is her publisher, but always insists on having meetings at bars so she could be like, you should ask that guy out. Like, you should go talk to that guy. And then like, there's her neighbor who is like, oh, you know, Joan, I'm I'm holding out hope for you. (laughs) Like, everyone is up in her business about like, why aren't you dating anybody? And it's because she's in love with the lead of her books. I mean, that's how it's literally portrayed. I think what it more is, is like, she wants someone who makes her feel the way that her the characters in her books feel about the men in the books. Right. She's a like, beloved romance novelist, right on the line where like, her books sell quite well, and she won an award from Walden Books, but not to a point where like, she is has a massively famous face. Right. And I do love that she was crying as she was writing her book at the beginning. I think that tells you a lot about her. It's very funny and also very good character work. Kathleen Turner is doing a great job in this movie. She's really good in it. This is still kind of early in her career. She really broke out in 1981 in Body Heat, which establishes her as this big sex symbol of the 80s. To the point that she had a really hard time getting cast in this movie. Because they were like, you're Kathleen Turner. Like, you are the sex symbol of the 1980s. No one is going to believe you as Joan Wilder, this, like, mousy romance novelist. And she fought really hard for it, like, pushing for screen tests, also, like, pushing for screen tests where she, like, pulled her hair back and, like, didn't wear makeup and stuff like that. And she's great in the movie. She's awesome. I think it's one of the most believable appearance shifts where she goes from frumpy, dowdy to when she has her, like, beachy curls and her shirt is open slightly and she's just been running through the jungle, so she's got a light shine on her face. I mean, it's clear that her hair and makeup have been done well above the capability of her in the jungle with no luggage. But I feel like you still see a nice turn that could be explained more from attitude and a blowout. Yeah, yeah I like also that it happens gradually over the course of the movie, and that so much of... That happening, like her sort of getting more into the jungle of it all and her getting to do more adventure kind of stuff is driven by her and not by the Michael Douglas character. But also like there is so much self-discovery happening across it where like, you know, there's that great moment where she swings across the ravine on that vine. But that starts because she is scared of being shot at. And so against the advice of Michael Douglas, she's like, I'm going to try and cross this rickety bridge. And she's like terrified trying to cross this rickety bridge. And she's like about to lose it when she grabs onto this vine and then has this exultant swing across the canyon. Like, I think the movie very smartly, both in her as a character and in the relationship with Michael Douglas, never is like, there's a moment where it's a turning point. It's like bits and pieces going back and forth and back and forth, but building up until this person has really become someone new. I think that is the best choice. Is not like she swings across the vine and all of a sudden she's willing to take the lead and is a new woman, but she is slightly more confident after it. And also she drinks one of the best props 
that I don't really understand the reasoning behind, but the fact that she only owns tiny liquor bottles is one of my favorite parts about this movie. I don't really understand the character choice, but somehow I understand it deeply. Yeah. It's so funny. By all accounts, the script was also quite personal to the screenwriter, Diane Thomas, who wrote it in 1979, which is notable because it means she wrote it before Raiders came out. Wow. I mean, the movie gets produced because Raiders is a giant hit. Yeah, of course. But she wrote it in 1979 while working as a waitress and then eventually like got an agent and then it becomes like this big buzzy script. There's a big bidding war, like everyone's trying to get their hands on it. And then Michael Douglas paid $250,000 for it to buy it as a producer. And that was a record for a first script sale. Um, Diane Thomas seems like she was kind of a cool woman. We've actually mentioned her before because she wrote Always. Really? Yeah. But, like, she only wrote the first version of it because she dies in a car crash a year after this movie comes out. Oh, my God. Yeah. She was in a car with two other people. They had, like, been at a bar. And so, like, none of them was sober. They had, like, the person who they thought was least sober, least drunk, drive the car But also it had been raining, and so the car, like, slipped while they were driving down the PCH and hit a telephone pole. I can't believe just how normalized drunk driving was before 20 years ago. Yeah. So, like, this is the only script of hers that's produced in her lifetime. It was a big hit. And, of course, Zemeckis and Spielberg are friends, so off this movie, she gets a contract with Amblin to write movies for them. She writes Always, which we talked about. It was a big passion project for Spielberg. And she wrote this legendary Indiana Jones script set in a haunted house. And they didn't make it? Spielberg thought it was too similar an idea to Poltergeist and didn't want to do it, which I think is stupid. That's dumb, and it's been long enough. Maybe the new one that they're talking about will be set in a haunted house. I would love that. With Phoebe Waller-Bridge in it. She can play the little girl from Poltergeist. (laughs) All grown up. Yeah. Wow, that's a mistake. That movie should be made. So you actually, before we started this, you were talking a little bit about Michael Douglas. Yes. I fundamentally don't understand how he was one of the biggest leading men in Hollywood. Uh, For starters, he's great. I love Michael Douglas. I think he's a good actor, but he is not a sex symbol in any way. But somehow he was. He was. I mean, there's that run that really starts with this movie and runs into the 1990s in which Michael Douglas represents, like, the unbridled id of, like, 80s America. Like, obviously, the biggest example of that is Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. But, like, her star persona is, like, kind of scummy, but, like, scummy in a suit. Right. He's very particular style of scummy you're like oh this guy like does cocaine and cheats on his wife like let's see what he's got going on which is not to say that douglas was necessarily doing either but that's the vibe that you get from a lot of those movies i think in the 80s you did cocaine until proven otherwise and he, he was married at the time i don't know about i can't speak to that part but based off of the stories from the 80s it sounds like it is not an innocent until proven guilty situation with cocaine use the thing is like This is his first big starring role. Obviously, he's the son of the legendary actor Kirk Douglas. Yeah, I don't think that that hurt his ability to become a Hollywood leading man. Right. But the thing is, like, he was living in New York. He was actually roommates with Danny DeVito. And he then got cast on The Streets of San Francisco, which was, like, a crime procedural. 
So he did a couple of seasons of that and was having a hard time breaking into movies in part because at the time there's that big divide between like TV acting and movie acting. Like they are not seen as a thing that you can go back and forth between the way that it is today. And so because he's having a hard time getting into the movies, he's like, fine, I'm not going to be a movie actor. Like I'll be a producer. So Michael Douglas's first Oscar is as a producer for producing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I didn't know he produced that. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that he is really a very good producer. Yeah, he also produces The China Syndrome, and then he produces this movie. Like I said, he buys this movie as a producer, and they, like, look at other actors for it before he's like, okay, like, I'm going to do this. And this is, like, the real first Michael Douglas starring vehicle, and it helps to turn him into a movie star because it's such a success. I did just read on his Wikipedia page that he acquired the rights to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from his father. So he did a good job producing, but he has one of the biggest legs up I have seen in a while if he just got the rights to a huge book from his dad. Yeah, Kirk Douglas had bought it like to star in it himself, and then he was like, wait a minute, I'm too old for this. Wow, that's very self-aware. Yeah, it's nice to see. Yeah. I always respect when actors realize roles change in a way. And then sometimes they don't, because I don't think Asa Butterfield will ever be cast as an adult. Well, no, but that's because he was born on Mars, and so he doesn't grow tall enough to look like an adult. No, he grows too tall, because there's not enough gravity. Oh, that's true. It's the odd. But his heart's too big. Yeah, his heart's too big. His heart grew three times that day, and yeah. it was not a good thing. <laughs> it was no good. He had to go back into zero gravity. Oh, God. Go back between the moon and New York City. That movie being boring is one of the worst crimes I've seen in film history. I rewatched the trailer for that movie when I was editing the episode, and I was like, these don't match. Yeah, that explains why we had different expectations going in, I feel. Yeah. Oh my god. I need to stop thinking about that movie, because sometimes it'll just go for a huge stretch where I don't think about it at all, and then it's just back. Anyway, um, so had you seen Romancing the Stone before the other day? No, and I knew nothing about it before you put it on the list. Well, this actually was a listener suggestion like several years ago. I don't remember who suggested it. I don't think I actually knew that, but I did see, I was looking at our upcoming schedule when we were talking about it and you had included it. And I also thought this was the Family Stone. I think I thought they were the same movie because then I looked it up and I was like, adventure comedy romance? I thought it was a movie about a family drama. Yeah, this is more fun than that. It is much more fun than that. But at the same time, the name just doesn't really give you any idea of what it's about. It's the kind of thing of like, having seen the movie, I really like the name. Because it's evoking the romance novels that Joan Wilder writes, especially in the font as it appears in the movie, where it's like this swirly pink romancing and then stone in these like big jade letters but the name of a movie has to precede the content it shouldn't be good after you've seen it so the actual phrase romancing the stone comes from like jewelry making it has to do with getting a stone ready to be set it's a it's a thing yeah it's an actual thing oh i did not know that I mean, I learned that doing research for this episode. This movie came so close to a title drop and then chickened out, and I was so upset. When were you thinking they would do it? Well, during the scene when Danny DeVito is talking about how he's at least trying to be honest about stealing it instead of romancing it away from her. Oh, yeah, yeah. So close. Ready to drop the banner and blow the confetti cannons. I saw this movie about a year ago. And yeah, I think it's a really fun movie. Prior to that, I had no clue what it was about, except that when we did our Indiana Jones episode, 
we talked about how there were fewer like spiritual successors to it than we would have expected. And one of our friends, uh, past and future guest, Tim Lyons, reached out to us and was like, what about Romancing the Stone? Like, that comes a couple years later. That's obviously on the heels of Indiana Jones. Really, all I knew about it was the phrase because... Have I ever told you about Fire Me, Please? No. Is it a reality show about trying to get fired as fast as possible? Yeah. (laughs) Crushed it. It was a reality show on, I think, Fox in the summer of 2005. So pre-true reality boom. Yes. It's like a post-survivor show, but... Post-survivor pre-Kardashians. Yeah. It's a hidden camera show. It's, you know, in the way where you're like, hard to say how much of this is real, but you just surrender to the reality of it and have fun with it. So the premise was they would clear it with the owners of businesses, but not tell anybody else who worked there, that two different people would start at different jobs on the same day in the same town. And their goal was to get fired as close to three o'clock as possible without going over. And so, like, they hired a lot of improv people for it. Angela Kinsey from The Office was on an episode. It's incredibly funny. It's hard to track down. My mom saw the first episode and was like, this rules. And so then we recorded all of the subsequent ones on VHS. So we have them on VHS at my parents' house. And every once in a while, we'll, like, figure out how to hook up the player and watch them again. That sounds very fun, honestly. It rules. At one of them, a person works at a coffee shop called Romancing the Bean, which is a terrible name for a coffee shop. Oh, I hate it. But so until I watched this movie last year, all I knew about Romancing the Stone was someone named their coffee shop out after it. I feel like it would be pretty easy to win that if you just were willing to commit to doing something illegal at 2.55. The trick is, though, like... You've got to count that, like, the person isn't going to want to, like, talk to you for the next 10 minutes about it. Yeah. So you have to time it right. But I feel like if you just do a line of coke in the break room at 2.30, you might get arrested, but you'll win the show. I love, there's a dude who worked at, like, a barbecue place. (laughs) And he spent, like, an hour in the bathroom just, like, making really disgusting noises. And then he comes out and he's like helping to sort the food. And he goes, I probably should have washed my hands before doing this. I need to watch it. Is it on YouTube? It sounds like a Uh, show that would be on YouTube. There are clips, but I don't see entire episodes. So we'll just have to go over to my parents' house and watch their VHSs. I'm so close. One more week and I'll be inoculated and we could go watch it. Woo! All right. Anyway, Romancing the Stone. Yes. Yeah. I knew nothing about it going in, and I was very delighted by this movie. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, I think this movie would not be nearly as fun without the score. Oh, my goodness. So this is the first Alan Silvestri-Robert Zemeckis pairing. And then after this, Silvestri scores every Zemeckis movie. Because there were times where it would stop to buffer the first major one was we were watching her cross the bridge and it stopped to buffer and the soundtrack stopped and I immediately felt no suspense anymore. Like most of it was coming from the music. And then at the end when it's just like clapping during the final dramatic scene, it was so good. I've had it stuck in my head for two days. Uh, Great score. It's just Alan Silvestri letting the saxophones rip. Yeah, very 80s. A score that would not work in any other decade. (laughs) It is so of its time and it rules. This movie is very of its era. In all the best ways. 
And also in the stereotyping Columbia ways. Yeah, that part's rough. And it's one of those 80s movies where you can tell it thinks it's doing a good job, but it's not. But that's that's okay. It's a good movie. And the movie, like we said, was a big hit. It like made more than 10 times its budget. It makes a movie star out of Michael Douglas. It's great for Kathleen Turner. It gives Zemeckis the reputation that he's able to go and make Back to the Future. It won two Golden Globes for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy and Best Actress for Kathleen Turner. It's nominated for the Oscar for Best Editing and the WGA Award for Original Screenplay. And Fox was so high on it that they got a sequel released the next year. Oh my god. Yeah. It's called Jewel of the Nile. By all accounts, it is nowhere near as good. It makes basically the same amount of money, but people like it much less, so they do not make a third. After watching this, I immediately watched the I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way clip from Roger Rabbit. Right, Kathleen Turner voices Jessica Rabbit. And I was just like, she is so talented, even in just a speaking role. And I'm pretty sure she's not credited in that movie. She's just like a special thanks. Yeah, it's kind of weird that she's not credited because Jessica Rabbit isn't a small role. Yeah. It's also interesting too, because she and Zemeckis kind of butted heads making this movie where she got frustrated the way she talked about it. She was like, Robert Zemeckis very much thinks in terms of images. Like, he wants something that will look a particular way on screen, whether it looks cool or looks sexy or looks, you know, whatever. And so she would get really frustrated with basically him asking her to contort her body in different ways to, like, create particular images. And she's like, first of all, I cannot do that. Second of all, if I do do that, I will not be able to act. And so it sounds like there is some real sort of push and pull between the two of them. And also, of course, you think about the fact that, like, She is taking this role and pushing for, like, I don't have to just be a sex symbol. I can do stuff that's quite different from that. But, I mean, I guess they, in the end, got along well enough that she comes in and voices Jessica Rabbit. I feel that I've heard Zemeckis is not a good actor's director. I mean, he is a visual stylist, first and foremost. Like, he is really good at creating images, and he really likes them to be a particular way. Which is not to say that he's, like, Fincher-level exacting, but, like... Getting out of the way of actors is not his priority. Right. And helping them work through their performances. I think I've heard from some other films that he is not putting in the time to work with them on characters and things like that. I mean, you think about the way Meryl Streep talked about Death Becomes Her back when we did that episode. And she's like, yeah, I guess it looks cool, but I would never do anything like this ever again. Right. And she stuck to it. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I don't know. There's got to be some CG in Into the Woods, right? I assume that's not makeup that makes her into the witch. It's weird that she's in that movie. It's weird that she's in that movie, but she also didn't get a hole blown through her stomach in that movie. That is true. Actually, Goldie Hawn's the one that gets Goldie Hawn got the hole blown. Meryl Streep was backwards. Right. She was backwards and had her head smashed. What a movie. Ugh. They did talk a lot about making a sequel to Jewel of the Nile. In the 90s, they got pretty far in development on a third movie called The Crimson Eagle, uh, which would star Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner and their characters' kids, which, no thank you. (laughs) No. And then in the 2000s, Douglas was working on one called Racing the Monsoon that would star him and Catherine Zeta-Jones, who he famously saw in Zorro and was like, I want to marry her, and then did. Yes, he is very famously married to Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes. But then in 2007, do you know about the, the remake that Fox pitched? No. Fox wanted to do a remake of this movie starring Katherine Heigl and either Taylor Kitsch or Gerard Butler. Incredible. <laughs> a terrible idea. A terrible idea. 
I like saying Catherine Heigl for it. Like, obviously, like she's the big like rom com person at the time, but also it's just like that's saying like, oh, this character is like really buttoned up at the start of the movie, and like, yeah, that's kind of Catherine Heigl's star persona, but like we need to have the feeling that she is like the adventurer waiting to burst out. And that's just not something I've ever seen from Catherine Heigl. No, I mean, she was in that movie where she was a treasure hunter with Matthew McConaughey. I don't know what you're talking about. Isn't she in that? It's like fool's gold or something. Oh, that sounds familiar. Uh, That's Kate Hudson. Kate Hudson. I get that confused, to be honest. I've heard of the name of this movie and I know nothing about this movie. It was not great. I don't know why I've seen it, but it was not very good. Kevin Hart plays a rapper named Big Bunny Deans. We should not <laughs> and watch Ray this. Winstone, Ray Winstone plays a character named Mo Fitch. Oh, God. And Donald, Donald Sutherland's name in this movie is Nigel Honeycutt. Imagine Donald Sutherland introducing himself as Nigel Honeycutt. I feel like he's the only person that could pull it off. Yeah. Him or Tim Curry. Oh, Tim Curry would be a great character named Nigel Honeycutt. Right. We've already accepted him as a Nigel, so it's not too much of a leap. Who is he named Nigel in? Mark is staring at me like he's never heard of Nigel Thornberry. Oh my god. I never made that connection. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Crazy. I haven't thought about that TV show in a very, very long time. Neither has anyone else. (laughs) That is true. All right. So, should we get back to the romance of this movie? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of a film into five points to help guide the conversation. Will, please bring us to point one of the film Romancing the Stone. Sure. So as we've mentioned, Kathleen Turner plays Jane Wilder, who is a romance novelist, but she has no romance in her life. And everyone in her life is constantly reminding her of that fact. Including her old neighbor, who at first, when she's walking up the stairs, I don't know why, but I assumed she would be like Jenna Maroney's neighbor in 30 Rock, just like the mean old lady next door. (laughs) But then she just turns into the nice old lady who wants her to have love. I kept thinking about the old lady neighbor from the 12 Dates of Christmas who, like, teaches her how to cook Christmas food because she makes cake for everybody. God, what a terrible movie. But, like, that is what I thought of. Anyway, so Jane Wilder is this romance novelist, and she has an experience that we've all had, which is she gets a large package in the mail from Columbia, and then that's interesting because... Her brother-in-law had just died in Colombia, and as we learn, of course, her brother-in-law was hacked to pieces in Colombia for a reason that is never given. It's not clear if he was involved in the drug trade or if he was a random guy. No, it's because he had the map. They were trying to get the map. Right, but like, why did he have the map? Oh, that's a good question. I have a lot of questions about the map. And the jewel in general. So, her brother-in-law was hacked to pieces. But it already mailed the map to her. That's not the big deal at that point. So Jane Wilder's sister has been kidnapped by Ira and Danny DeVito and is being held hostage. So Jane has to go to Columbia to deliver the map to Danny DeVito to free her sister. Right. And okay, I just need to talk about it. We will get to the jewel later. But let's talk about this now. So the map makes it look like it's an old, like, old treasure map leading to this gem. Yes. El Corazon. Yeah. Behind El Tenador de Diablo. Spoiler alert. They find El Corazon and they're digging for it and then they pull it out and it's in a modern porcelain Easter rabbit, which means that the stone was hidden post mass production age. So my explanation would be someone who had the map found the stone and was like, yay, I found the stone. I don't actually need it right now. 
This location has kept it safe for a long time, so I assume it will continue to do so, but hid it in the rabbit statue as, like, a safety measure in case anybody else found it. Okay. That is a explanation that may have put more thought into it than the writers of this movie. <laughs> Writer. Because I just never understood. I was like, this is an old map. So either the map was made recently and designed to look old, or I don't know. That was the only thing I could come up with. I think my explanation is a reasonable one. Yeah, I believe it. Okay. So anyway. Romance. Point one. Yeah. So she goes to Columbia. She's supposed to meet up with uh, Danny DeVito and Ira, but we also have Zolo in play, who works for the Colombian government and also has a private army. But for some reason, when he finds Joan at the airport, he doesn't immediately kidnap her and take the map there. Instead, he directs her to get on the wrong bus and then rides with her on the bus for several hours into the countryside. Is it the best plan? No. Does it make any sense? Also, no. <laughs> Does it matter? <laughs> maybe he like, maybe he knows the general direction of the stone already and realizes that's true, that they the, do wind up going to the right place. Right. Maybe the bus takes them closer than the city of Cartagena. All right. I'm good with that. So anyway, the bus driver gets distracted by Joan because she's trying to confirm that she's going the right direction, which she is not. And then because the bus driver is paying attention to her, he crashes into a parked truck. So that takes us to point number one. Now, I ain't cheap, but I can't be had. My minimum price for taking a stranded woman to a telephone is $400. Will you take 375 in traveler's checks? American Express? Of course. Not a deal. But also, Danny DeVito is aware that she got on the wrong bus and is now also hunting them. Yeah, Danny DeVito has a lot of business in this movie, but never really does anything. Yeah, he's just there. So he's not bad. No, but he's he's. This Danny is part DeVito. of what turns him into a movie star too. Obviously, he's like on Taxi before this, but in terms of making the jump from TV to movie, his buddy Michael Douglas helped do it. So Joan is the last person by the bus because she was told that there'd be another bus coming. Yeah, told by Zolo, right? Like the private army guy. He's like, everyone else is leaving because they're dumb peasants. Like, just stay here and wait for the next bus. And so I think he's trying to get everyone else out of the way so then he can kill her unseen and take the map. Which he's going to until Jack shows up with a gun. There's no one who is good at shooting in this movie. Which I kind of appreciate. I appreciate it. I think most of us would be bad at shooting another person. Yeah, zero people ever land any shots in this movie. So he rescues Joan. And then Zolo runs away. What I like about Jack is that if you look at the poster of this movie, you're like, okay, this is an Indiana Jones type, but it's not. He's like mostly a loser who like doesn't even bother pretending to be an Indiana Jones type most of the time. Like he exists by smuggling birds. Like when he explains it later, he's like, yeah, I was kind of always looking for a shortcut and I found out people will pay a lot of money for these birds. So he just drives around and captures birds and all he wants is to buy a boat. Like, that's his big goal. He he drives around with a framed stock photo of a sailboat. It's so wild that he just looks at this picture of a boat. It's fun how pathetic he is. Like, he should be supremely cool Harrison Ford, but he's not. And that's kind of what makes him more interesting as a character. Even the fact that, like, in this point when Joan is like, please take me to a phone booth, I'll pay you. And he starts off being like, It'll cost $500 for me to take you to a phone booth. And then it takes no negotiating for him just to drop that down quite a bit. Right. They end up at 375 and American Express traveler checks. 
like he he is constantly presenting himself as high status, but is not. So he agrees to help her get somewhere. I think to Cartagena. Uh, and then it starts raiding, <laughs> and they get washed into the jungle. I said, are you hurt? What's the matter? You paralyzed the neck up? Are you hurt? No. Good. What's your name? One of the things I like consistently throughout this movie is there's no real point where Jack really rescues Joan substantially. Like, the closest is when they first meet. But even then, it's not like he sees this going on and is like, ah, I'm here to rescue you. Instead, like, Zolo sees Jack and is getting ready to shoot at him. And Jack defends himself, and that happens to help Joan. And then, like, later on, when they get to the ravine, Joan, as we said, accidentally comes across the vine, saves herself. And then we're going to talk about, like, the big fight at the fort. Like, again, Jack is willing to save her, but ultimately she doesn't need him. So they're now traveling through the jungle, hiding from Zolo. And I think this brings us to point two. Yeah. So, like you said, we have the mudslide where they go down and there's that real horny shot of, you know, she falls down the, the mudslide first and then... Jack follows, and he lands with his face right between her legs and takes a good long while looking at her legs before getting up. And then she introduces herself. Up to that point, they have not bothered. Oh, right. That is when they give each other their names. No, that's when she gives her name, but she doesn't ask his name, and he doesn't offer it until they get to the plane. Oh, right. And the plane is point number two. Yeah, so they're going through just trying to make their way to a town where there will be a phone booth, and they land at this downed plane which was carrying marijuana. And they decide to spend the night in this plane because it'll be sheltered. Right, to get out of the rain, at least. And in a classic action movie, hiding by a fire scene, they start to talk, and this is where she gets his name. He throws some pot on their fire, so they're both getting high. Which I love. Which I love. And then they also find a bottle of booze, so they're drinking, which is all just very reminiscent of The Mummy and Pirates of the Caribbean and probably some many others. Yeah, it's a trope of the genre. There's some nice stuff in here. This scene obviously is where they sort of start to see one another as like people they could be attracted to. And one of the things I like is that this is a scene where he seems very uncool, a thing that I you know keep touching on. But like this is where he's talking about how like all he wants is his boat to like go out and be alone on his boat. He's talking about the bird stuff. And in this scene, it becomes clear that he's not, like, just picking up these birds. Like, he knows a lot about the birds. He's kind of gotten into it. Like, he's kind of a dorky dude as much as he presents himself as the cool adventure hero. I really do appreciate that. But he's also, even in this scene, he's still being pretty mean to her. Yes. I think we haven't really pointed out that he is not nice to her for a while. Yes. A big part of it, I do think, is his own frustration at... When the bus hit his truck, a bunch of the birds got out, and then a bunch of the people on the bus just took the remaining birds. Yeah, he lost about $15,000 worth of birds, he says. Right, he lost, like, months and months of work. So, it makes sense. But he's still just, I mean, I think it's pretty important that we are clear that he is still not being super nice to her. Yes. I do appreciate, though, that... You know, we talked about this with her transformation, but with their relationship too, there's not one moment where it's like, and now we've gone to liking each other. Like, there is still some of that, like, there are moments like on the plane where it's like, oh, like, I'm kind of attracted to you, 
but it's not like that has fully tipped over. Like there is some like backwards and forwards motion that's gradually advancing, but not always in one direction, which I think is more realistic. Yeah, we'll get to this in the next point, but I do think there is a bit too much of like that moment for me in the town because it's expressed through dance as well. (laughs) So yeah, they have their nice moment in the plane. The next day they make their way to a town, but that town has no phone. They almost get killed, but luckily Alfonso Arau is the biggest Joan Wilder devotee on the planet. And he's like, right, this is the Joan Wilder, Juanita. I read her books to you every night. I love that line. Yeah, this like murderous like drug runner. I also love that everyone is also into her. Like he has made them all fans. It's so funny. So he rescues her from Zolo and brings her to a town with a phone. Yeah, so that's point number three, the night that they spend in the town. Let's dance. Oh, no, I, I can't. Come on, let me show you. I, no, no, no. What? When they arrive, there is this very awkward moment where they're like, well, I guess this is the end of our contract because... Joan has been taken to a phone. And, like, clearly neither of them wants to part ways at that point. I like how weird it is. Yeah, it's very awkward. He offers her to stay in his room at the hotel. Or to go take a shower in his room at the hotel. Yeah, and he's like, I'll buy you dinner. Like, you know. And so they're going to have, like, a nice night before they go. And he buys her new clothes. But also we should point out that he's already asked about a Xerox machine and is aware of the map. Right. He is happy to flirt with her, but he also wants to make sure that he gets the big uh, the big stone. Especially because they've already seen the fork of the devil. So again, it's that thing of like, he is being torn between like, well, I, I do want this money, but also I want the girl. And he, try- he tries to convince her. He's like, wouldn't it be better if we got the stone? And then you have options. You could give him the map. You can give him the stone. Do whatever you want. But that night, they're going to get dinner. They're going to have a nice night. And there's like a big party happening in the town. They dance. And then they yeah. sleep together. See, I think this is lovely. I think it's a good dance. I just, I find most romance movies where they start off as enemies and then grow to love each other over the course of a few hours to just push it a little far. Sure. But like, it's really nice when they're dancing and then they kiss and like all the background like goes to white. I'm a fan. I thought we were going to have the most 80s sex scene, but instead it's just two naked people lying on top of each other. Yeah, it's not Terminator. Yeah. Talking about the dancing, a lot of that is stuff that was cameras rolling between takes, where while they were getting shots set up, Michael Douglas was just like having a good time, like dancing with random people. It's a lot of the stuff before Kathleen Turner gets involved, where it's just him dancing around, is stuff that was not shot to be part of the movie. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Anyway, that night, like you said, they go back and they bang. And she's like, maybe we should go and and get the stone. That way we have options. And he's like, sounds like a great plan. And that's when we learned that he had taken the map and hidden it under the mattress. And he like puts it back because he no longer needs to make his illicit Xerox. Right. I also thought at that point he'd already made the Xerox, but they never pulled that out. So I guess he hadn't. Yeah. The next day, they follow the map very easily. They get to the cave. They find the stone. She's telling him about how, like, she's excited about all the stuff she's doing. He's the best time she's ever had. Seems great. But then the bad guys show up, and they get separated, and she's frustrated because she's like, wait a minute. Like, we got separated 
And you're the one who has access to the stone and the map and all of that. And Danny DeVito had already pointed out that he was conning her. Right. Danny DeVito was being honest and trying to steal it instead of romancing the stone away from her. Exactly. So she's already primed to look for betrayal and gets it. And then he tells her, walk towards the sunset and it'll take you to Cartagena and I will be there when you get there. And he did come for her. Later. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, he got captured before he could meet up with her. Right. So this brings us to point four where they're all meeting under the fort. Ira and Danny DeVito have brought her sister and she has brought the map and they're going to exchange it until Zolo shows up with Jack at gunpoint. Right. And then Zolo is going to kill Joan, but again, like this is the point where Jack sort of has to choose between the stone and Joan, and he chooses to throw the stone into the alligator pond. But Zolo catches it. And then an alligator bites his hand off. At which point it's I said, awesome. okay, Captain Hook. Yeah, Zolo does pretty well with his hand being bitten off. Yeah, he does a good job. He must have caught it with his non-dominant hand. Which is impressive. So then there's a whole fight. Jack tries to capture the alligator. Right, there's a lot of back and forth where Jack is trying to help Joan and also not let the alligator get away. And eventually, you know, I think she wins the fight, right? Yeah, the movie makes the best choice, which is that he does let go of the alligator to go and help her. But by the time he gets there, she has already defeated Zolo. Yeah, because she like kicks him and he falls into another alligator pit. There's many just pits of alligators. (laughs) Right. But, like, this way, Jack gets to make a heroic move without damseling Joan. Yes, I really appreciated that. It's great. And then he says, go back to the U.S., and I can't for some reason. Well, I'll tell you what the reason is. Yeah. I can't remember what he tells her about, like, why he can't go back. Yeah, so point five, she's back in the U.S. She's much more confident in her life. Like, at the beginning of the movie, she is always getting shoved around in crowds. Now she's, like, walking and everybody gets out of her way. Jody, you are now a world-class hopeless romantic. No. Hopeful. Hopeful romantic. I think Holland Taylor says something nice about her new life. Well, Holland Taylor says something where she's like, you're always going to be a hopeless romantic. And she's like, no, I'm hopeful. Right. And then she walks out of the building and Jack is outside in the middle of like Madison Avenue with a boat on a trailer. And alligator skin boots. Right. One of my favorite touches. So he hung back. He like made the call like, oh, that alligator is not going to be able to digest that giant emerald. So So he (laughs) caught the alligator, skinned it. Made himself some boots, bought a boat, came to New York for Joan. And then they kiss. Yeah, they kiss. And then the last shot of the movie that the credits play over is just that boat driving down the wide open street. And it's kind of great. I really liked that last shot. Yeah. But Will, after watching all of this unfold, do you find the romance of romancing the stone believable? I mean, I want to. (laughs) I think, again, we need to remind ourselves, believability does not equal quality. And quality does not equal believability. It is probably as believable as Joan Wilder's novels. Right. Maybe even more so. I'm leaning towards believable in some ways, but the turn is just a little too fast, which sums up most movies because 
movies have a limited time frame. I mean, the romance of this follows a very conventional rom-com structure, including a hurried fight that is basically immediately resolved. Yeah, that one, it's very quick in this movie. It's a solid one minute long separation. So what do you what are you thinking? Like a six here? Yeah, I was leading towards a six. Yeah. Do you think that Jack or Joan is dateable? Joan, yes, especially at the end of the movie. Jack's a no for me. Yeah. He's just weird. He doesn't present this way, but he's kind of too much of a sad sack. I do like, frankly, that Michael Douglas becomes a movie star on a role this weird. Yeah, I appreciate that. But he's just, something's off about him. They never really explain how he got to Columbia in the first place. You know, I knew this before I watched it for the first time, but I didn't put it together until yesterday. My girlfriend's sister is really into this movie. And it wasn't until the second time I was watching it and I was watching how much Jack talked about the details of all the birds. And I was like, oh, Naomi's a bird person. Like, she might just like this movie because there's a lot of bird talk in it. (laughs) I'd buy it. Uh, ignoring the existence of the sequel, do you think that Jack and Joan would stay together? I honestly feel like I have no idea. I genuinely can't say. I feel at a loss, honestly. It could go either way. It is hard to imagine Jack out of the jungle, but he's not that happy in the jungle, so maybe a change is what he needs. Yeah. We just don't get to see Jack in his new life enough. Like, the change- Yeah. Because obviously now that he's, you know- has money and doesn't hunt birds, he's going to change. And we just don't get a chance to see what that looks like. Yeah, I agree. Now, if you did have to pick one person in the movie to date, who would it be? Oh, I actually kind of prepared for this one. Oh, good. I love who is credited in the credits as Hefty Woman, the woman at the (laughs) party who notices Danny DeVito trying to steal Joan's purse and just beats the shit out of him. Yeah. Women helping women. She... Is just goes ham. I love her. She's everything. That is a great answer. Um, for me, there's a lot of lot of murderers in this movie. I mean, I think I know the other clear answer. Oh, who's the other clear answer? Holland Taylor. She's that's su- that's what I was getting. She's to. a successful publisher who knows her men. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with Gloria. Uh, Gloria. Now, Mark. Many of the films we've talked about on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. Should it happen with Romancing the Stone? I don't think so, because the countryside is a very large part of this movie. I agree. Both for the narrative and also for some of the comedy. There's that great shot of Danny DeVito running across the field. Right. I just think that the movie uses space too well, and I mean it is a Zemeckis movie, to be turned into a musical. Yeah, I don't think this is one that we need to do that with. So I think that about does it for our Romancing the Stone talk. Next week, we're going back to musicals, which I feel that it's been a little while. We will be watching the, I don't remember the year, film Dreamgirls. 2006, I believe. 2006. Yeah, um, this was a new one for me. So I'm excited to have the chance to talk about it. I was very surprised when you said you hadn't seen it. Yeah. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. Last question, what is the best piece of dating advice we got from Romancing the Stone? Talking about your interests can make you seem more approachable. I was thinking all great romance starts with a contract. <laughs> Okay. Well, until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.